You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Lori Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, the S&P's long-term value index, speaking to Linda Ealing Lee about female leadership and making IR outsourcing work. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast. It's a weekly roundup of the top stories from around the world of investor relations. We're back in the IR Magazine studios with Tim Human, Garnet Roach and Condice Monpetit. Morning. Morning. Hello. 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 It's almost February and naturally almost the advent of the Chinese New Year. We spent this week actually checking our horoscopes um, and I was shocked to discover I was born in the year of the snake of all animals. But have you heard of CLSA's Feng Shui Index? Uh, the Hong Kong brokerage sends out its mystic predictions for the new year every year, including forecasts for each of the 12 Chinese zodiac signs. 2016, of course, is the year of the monkey, and CLSA predicts that, like the, quote, furry primate, um, it's going to help out the Hang Seng Index at the beginning of the year with some fast monkey manoeuvres until the chimp takes a downward swing mid-year followed by a recovery. This is all direct quotes from the press release. I'm not adding any kind of monkey puns. There are also predictions that the mining, auto, financials, gaming, transport and machinery sectors are all set to flourish in Year of the Monkey. Uh, but worse news for oil and gas, utilities, technology, telecoms and internet firms as he runs amok, quote. And there are also individual predictions. It'll be a good year for people born in ox and snake years. For those born in the fire monkey year, I think that's this year, like Taiwan's new President Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, the stars favour work, travel and finance. Lucky her. It will be a mongrel year for fire dogs, such as Donald Trump, I've never heard him called quite that, who should watch his cash outflow and beware of the golden-tongued Hillary, who was born in the year of the fire pig, and thus a good pal of the monkey. <laughs> Unlikely friends, really. <laughs> can only think of that video of the baby monkey riding on a pig. Um, overall, it's uh, going to be a year for slow, considered expansion, LCLSA, so not for raucous monkey antics. But they do warn that the forecast is pure monkey business to be taken with a grain of salt or a cool banana mocktail, says the press release. Remember, it's a jungle out there and nothing is entirely predictable. While man loves the monkey for its endearing human-like qualities, it can also be unpopular for its roguish trickery. There we go, guys. Are we going to be backing that Feng Shui Index or following their financial advice? I scanned it for news of people born in the year of the rat, such as myself, but uh, nothing, nothing in there. So I'm not no quite direct sure. advice. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen this year. I'm a dog. You're not, a dog. Not, I'm not actually a dog. I'm <laughs> the year of the dog. What does um, that mean? We were looking at this last week, and I think it means that um, I should only travel northwest or something like that. I don't know. Only ever in a northwesterly direction. Only ever. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a tiger, and apparently mo- monkeys um, drive tigers mad. You know, they come and pull their pull their tail, <laughs> their whiskers. <laughs> We'll try not to pull your whiskers. Well, anyway, Tim, I think you've been looking into a more forward-looking and hopefully financially robust index this week. Yes, it should be. Um, I've been looking into the news that a new index has been launched, which is just for companies that are considered to be focusing on uh, long-term value creation. So the background to this is, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about the negative impacts of short-termism in the market um, and, and how people can push back against it. One of the main uh, talking points in 2015 was when Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, uh, sent a letter to all of the S&P 500 CEOs telling them that they were spending too much time focusing on short-term results and listening to, the, um, uh, and listening to short, short-term focused activists and to focus more on creating value for the long term. And so various people who agree with him have got together and they've produced this new index, and it's called the S&P Long-Term Value Creation Global Index, also known uh, catchily as the S&P 
LTVC Global Index. It has uh, 246 companies at the start, and it's been provided with uh, 2 billion in, in investment funds from six institutional investors. Adding to the, uh, the horrible uh, abbreviations, um, the main backer of the index providing $1 billion in, in terms of the funding is the CPPIB, uh, also known as the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board. And yeah, the, the aim with this is really to try and change what companies are doing, how companies are thinking about uh, their strategies. The CEO of the uh, Canadian institution says, quote, we are trying to use the index to change corporate behaviour. What kind of companies are making it in then? What companies are demonstrating that they've got a, a long-term value creation agenda? Yes, it's a bit, a bit of a vague sort of sounding approach, isn't it? The, in, the, in the press release about the index, uh, S&P says the index is uh, comprised of companies that have demonstrated the ability to manage both current and future economic and governance opportunities and risks by focusing on a long-term strategy. Uh, These companies must also have a sustained history of financial quality. So it sounds like the kind of companies any investor would want to uh, invest in, really. And as uh, Mark says, the idea is to change corporate behaviour. Is that something you think is going to happen? Well, it remains to be seen. There's there's a lot of things out there in the market which are encouraging people to take a more short-term approach. There's uh, fund manager goals, there's quarterly reporting, there's a lot of activism. But, you know, something like an index is, is a good start and definitely a statement of intent on, on, uh, by, these, by these institutions. I mean, one immediate impact that the index uh, should have is that for the companies that are in, in it, to begin with, the 246 companies that are included, this is a great stamp of approval for them. So if you're in an IR team of one of those companies, you can really take this inclusion and say to other investors, look, we are a very high quality company because we're in this index. I guess there are always going to be investors who want a, you know, maybe want a quick return rather than a long-term one, but it seems to be promoting the right kind of ideas. And on the subject of sustainable and well-run companies, uh, Condice, you've been speaking to Linda Ealing Lee uh, from MSCI about um, strong female leadership. Yes, uh, Linda Ealing Lee is the um, global head of ESG research at MSCI, and she wrote a report on uh, women on boards, which found companies from the um, MSCI World Index with strong female leadership outperform others by 36% in terms of return on equity. I asked her about the main challenges to having more women on company boards. And she said, first of all, people assume that gender diversity is more of a reputational issue, where in fact, there's a proof that these companies experience fewer governance-related controversies and uh, also have better financial performance. The second challenge is that people are always making the the same type of of searches when uh, there's a board seat that opens up. And so they always end up with the the same type of candidates. And don't some people say that this is because of there being a shortage of good female candidates for these board positions? Indeed, there's a common belief where people say, oh, they're they're just not enough qualified women. And uh, if there were, they would be considered. However, uh, a study of directors' backgrounds shows that slightly more sitting male directors have held C-suite roles versus sitting female directors. But when it came to non-C-suite roles, such as um, managing directors, there were absolutely no gap at all. And in fact, the women directors were actually more educated than their male counterparts. So she says people should dig more into this data rather than uh, making assumptions there are no women coming into the candidate pool. And which countries are leading the way in terms of gender diversity in boards? Linda Ealing says the leading countries are the ones that have instituted quotas. So that's Norway, Sweden, and France. And uh, in France, actually, the mandate was recent, but uh, there's been a spectacular ramp up. Uh, The numbers were very low, and now they're among the highest. Now mandatory requirements exist in Belgium, France, Germany, Iceland, Italy, Norway, and Malaysia, surprisingly, for new appointments. What's also interesting is that in the U.S., for example, there are a lot of uh, women CEOs and CFOs, but they're just not getting onto the board. 
In France, uh, it's the other way around. The percentage of women on boards is high, but uh, there was no female CEO in the 70 companies that are part of the, the MSCI World Index. And actually, I, I think I can't even name a, a female CEO uh, from the CAC uh, 40 company. So. Yeah, not so good. And can investors help this push for you know, strong female leadership of the companies that they invest in? Well, yes, most definitely. Um, investors can engage companies on their board's composition and quality and promote either a higher seat conversion rate or the creation of more seats. You have to know that in the U.S., one in five seats is filled by a male director who is over 72 and has been sitting on the board for more than 12 years. In a typical year, about 8% of board seats open up, and um, Linda explains that increasing that to 10% would definitely help get more women in. The other way is to encourage companies uh, to connect to a larger pool of candidates by browsing alternative databases featuring candidates with more diverse backgrounds. CalPERS and CalSTRS, for example, have built um, a database as a resource for companies. Finally, we're starting to see investors that want to allocate capital towards companies that have more uh, diverse leadership. So um, Linda Eling believes that um, that will also shift some behavior on the corporate level one day. Yeah, one day, hopefully. I, I, it seems to me as well, we hear a number of uh, headlines about how the more diverse a board is, the better decisions they kind of make. And obviously, if you've got lots of differing opinions, you'd hope that you'd have a wide perspective on everything. And obviously, if you have a board full of, for example, 72-year-old American white men, they're going to make quite homogenous decisions, it strikes me. And finally, Garnet, we're going to move on to you. And this is something we've actually been looking at together for a feature. Isn't it nice to work on one together? Yes. And it's about outsourcing IR, which is something that a lot of teams do. To some degree, yes. Um, Almost all IR teams outsource at least some part of the IR program, from conference calls to the investor relations website or perception study. Um, In fact, the amount spent on external IR services hit a three-year high in 2015, according to IR Magazine Research, with the global average team spending $157,000 on outsourcing. In terms of the percentage of the IR budget spent on these services, though, it's smaller mid-caps that spend the most, with a third of the budget going on external IR last year. At the same time, the average small-cap investor relations department has been cutting half over the last five years, going down from 2.8 in 2011 to 1.4 in 2015. Mid-cap teams have fallen by a third during that time to 1.9 IROs. Yes, you can see when you're looking at those figures why outsourcing is often more important to IR teams, you know, in the smaller end of the scale. Uh, what about um, companies who don't have an IR at all, though? How do they manage? Well, I've been speaking to Jim Cuddy, president and CEO of NIRI, about why a company might want to completely outsource its IR program. And there are many different situations where fully outsourced IR makes sense, he says, such as at a smaller cap company where the CFO, for example, might be wearing multiple hats. He says, quote, in this instance, the company may be growing, but might feel it is not economically or organisationally ready for internal investor relations. So the outsourced team provides the benefit of expert IR staff without the long-term commitment of additional headcount. Another example Jim offers is that of a pre-IPO company. But bringing in a consultant to handle IR at these different kinds of companies makes sense for a number of reasons. For example, a senior IR professional might be particularly expensive, um, while someone more affordable might be too junior. You can also choose different levels of service to suit your needs um, from an hourly rate or a per-project service, though ICR, a consultant that we spoke to, um, says that around a third of its clients are on a monthly retainer. Yes, I remember actually from writing a feature about um, mining companies, uh, particularly small-cap mining companies in Canada. They all uh, have outsourced IR teams in their entirety because they operate on a completely cyclical basis. And in the space of two years, they don't need the same IRO that they needed when they first started out before they started mining things. Uh, Did Jim offer any more tips about how to make the most out of your outsourcing experience? He did. Um, And he stressed that making what can obviously be quite a sensitive relationship work starts from day one. 
He says that it's important to set out exactly what you want from the relationship and make sure that everyone internally is on the same page with the same expectations so that you're not giving mixed signals. You need to make sure that the external counsellor is fully engaged and immersed in the company's communications organisation, he adds. Bring team members in, treat them like employees and run them through the company's orientation programme, he advises. Essentially, you need to have the mindset that they are your internal IR team. And chemistry also comes into play, so outsourcing works best if the company and the consultant feel comfortable working together. Finally, and probably most importantly, Jim says that firms need to be sure that any consultant brought on board is expert in security law compliance, particularly as it relates to communicating material information. Jim says, quote, Companies should always consider that they are ultimately responsible for their own communications, regardless of whether those communications come from the company itself or from its agent. Good advice. Yes, it's interesting to hear him say that, you know, as soon as you start treating it as a completely separate outsource function, then it starts not working. I guess it's just, you know, you're outsourcing the employment of some very specialised employees for a bit. Exactly. Well, anyway, I couldn't, I don't think I could outsource any of the Ticker podcasts. I don't think I could find any good replacements for you three. Just yet, anyway. Maybe one day. If anyone's offering. There was that guy in the news last year, wasn't there, who had outsourced his job, um... And someone, someone. Oh, really? Yeah, do you remember that? His, oh, yes, just, that's right. It was, quite, yeah. it was an office job, and he'd outsourced it to Southeast Asia somewhere. Yeah, and he, he just spent all day on Facebook at work. Very sensible man. <laughs> so there's always that option. Yeah, and we're not we're not condoning that on the ticker, but that is, I think, just about all we have time for. Do uh, keep tuned to the IR Magazine website, irmagazine.com, because we'll be bringing you next week the winners of our Canadian Awards 2016. Very exciting times for Canadian companies. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at IR Magazine and you can follow us on SoundCloud, www.soundcloud. Don't need to tell you, I hate saying that. SoundCloud.com forward slash IR Magazine. And we'll be back next week with another Ticker Podcast. But for now, it's goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app. 